welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveler. My name is Divya Sani, Global Editorial Director of Condé Nast Traveler, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey. And at Condé Nast Traveler, we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favorite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners, or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Steve King. Welcome to Condé Nast Traveler's Escape Routes. I'll be reading my piece on Swedish Lapland, which featured in the March 2018 issue of Condé Nast Traveler. I hope you'll enjoy it. In Swedish Lapland, reindeer outnumber people almost three to one. There are reasons for this. The week before I arrived in early January, the temperature had been stuck at around minus 30 degrees centigrade. Like a desert or an ocean or a mountaintop or any other place of great elemental extremity, Lapland has a way of prompting you to wonder, what am I doing here? To which an increasingly common answer is, visiting the Tree Hotel. In 2003, Kent and Britta Lindvall bought a former old folks' home in Harrods, an out-of-the-way village northwest of Luglio, and reopened it as a guest house. For a few years, things went fairly well, though not quite well enough to make it a viable long-term proposition. Unless they could attract more guests, they'd have to find something else to do for a living. Kent had a brainwave one day when he was out fishing. They would commission different distinguished architects to build rooms in the forest adjacent to the guest house, not on the ground, but above it in the trees. The architects would go crazy. The results would be spectacular. People would come from all over the world to marvel at them. He was right. The first four tree houses opened in 2010. By 2013, there were six. The most famous is the Mirror Cube, a shiny box skewered on a solitary pine, which not only reflects its surroundings, but also, like a magic trick, appears to vanish into them. It's a virtuoso piece of design whimsy and an extremely hard act to follow. But now there's a seventh room, which is, for my money, the best of the lot. Most of us think little or nothing of getting into a lift and being shot hundreds of metres into the air inside a skyscraper. Yet ascending a mere 10 metres above the ground, as you must do to enter the seventh room, seems a far more significant undertaking. It's as though you've left one world and entered another. The impression is enhanced 
by the dark window's uncluttered layout and contrasting use of pale timber and dark accents, cleverly orchestrated by Snoeta, a Norwegian design group. It's like being held, embraced by the trees that surround you. The room makes you not so much a tree hugger as a tree huggee. When the pines sway in the breeze, guests are swayed too. A deeply comforting sensation, unlikely as that may sound. On my second afternoon, I decided it would be wise to snap out of my reverie, return to ground level and exit the enchanted forest, at least for a few hours. A dog sledding outing is in any case more or less compulsory in this part of the world. So off I went, careering through the snow in the company of a dozen rampaging huskies and their easygoing master, Kim Jonsson. It's one measure of the oddity of the tree hotel that this sort of madcap excursion could, by contrast, serve as a sort of reality check. The following morning, when I opened my curtains in the seventh room to watch the sunrise, I could have sworn the Lulio River was no longer frozen solid, but ablaze, its curve on the distant horizon traced in a thick smear of crimson. After breakfast, I was met by Jürgen Draga, who was going to drive me to another brand new place to stay, Logger's Lodge. On the way, we stopped to ski at a frozen lake. We simply pulled over by the side of the road, stepped into some old army surplus skis and took off. It felt entirely spontaneous and free, as carefully organized plans often do. Even though the sun's low arc barely brought it above the tree line, it was squintingly bright under a cloudless sky. The slanting light flickered as we moved between the trees. On the lake, I drilled a hole in the ice and fished, if that's quite the word for sitting on a reindeer skin blanket and watching a small circle of exposed water slowly crystallize around the line. In the car, Jürgen had mentioned that there had been winds of 47 meters a second, a second, the previous night, some short distance south of where we were. But it was so still and quiet here on the lake that I fancied I could hear the water freezing. While I amused myself in that fashion, Jürgen rather more helpfully set a fire and scared up some lunch at the lake's edge. His grilled reindeer was superb, lean and smoky, matched with hot, sweet lingonberry juice and followed by cinnamon buns he'd baked that morning and cocafe, black coffee, boiled three times for reasons I failed to understand. Driving on to the lodge, there were no other cars on the road, no birds in the sky, no animals in the woods, no signs of life. Only here and there a few prints in the snow from reindeer, moose and hare. These empty impressions seemed companionable and lonesome at the same time, icy tokens of presence and absence. A letterbox marks the turning from the main road to Logger's Lodge, which is a further six kilometres on. By the time we got there, around three, the sky above the trees had lost most of its blue and, as is typical on clear afternoons in Lapland, 
taken on the peachy, pineapple tones of a tropical cocktail. Logger's Lodge used to be a dormitory for lumberjacks. Following its conversion by Eric Borg, a young entrepreneur, the cabin bears few traces of its former life. It is scandy immaculate outside and in, elegantly furnished and arranged around a hypnotic central fireplace with a separate sauna and outdoor hot tub. Having once slept 16, it now sleeps two. After dinner, Eric drove me to what he promised was a particularly good vantage point from which to see the northern lights. Eric is a serious photographer. He chatted about apertures and exposures and lenses and tripods. I wouldn't have taken off my gloves, outer pair or inner pair, if the snow had been littered with diamonds, let alone for the sake of fooling around with a camera. My own concerns were more mundane. Mostly they had to do with my toes, which were becoming painfully cold. Gazing up at the stars, I rocked from one heavily booted foot to another. The crunch of this snow at this moment, beneath these tormented toes, that was the extent of my cosmic ruminations. The northern lights failed to materialize. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I could hardly have been happier. I was freezing, but the sky was beautiful, lit up with stars like one of those black and white photographs of an early world's fair when electricity was the latest thing. I knew, too, that I would be back at the lodge soon. The fire would be crackling. There would be coffee and cinnamon buns. My toes would respond well. And anyway, it had been a day of exquisite lights from beginning to end, from the morning inferno over the Lulio River to the noontide dazzle at the lake to the pastel-toned Mai Tai sunset to this after-dinner excursion beneath all the glittering multitude. From Logger's Lodge, I continued further north and west through the splendidly named town of Yokmok to Jelivar and on towards Kiruna, 150 kilometres above the Arctic Circle. Kiruna is the site of the largest underground iron ore mine in the world, so vast the town itself is being rebuilt three kilometres east in order not to tumble into the ever-growing pit. Grand-scale forestry, wind power and hydroelectric projects have further transformed the region. Lorries clattered past in the opposite direction, sending clouds of atomized snow swirling into the air. I was greeted at Sapmi Nature Camp by Leonard Pitcher, a local Sami, and his two daughters, Amanda and Amelia. Leonard's newly opened camp is a simpler affair than either the Tree Hotel or Logger's Lodge. Here you sleep in teepee-like canvas lavus, warmed with wooden diesel-burning stoves. There's no mains water or electricity. You sauna rather than shower. Meals are taken in one of the handful of old wooden farm buildings on the property. At dinner, I admired a small pair of traditional reindeer-skinned boots displayed on a windowsill. The boots belonged to one of the girls. Leonard wasn't sure which one. The pointed toes were curled up, away from the sole, pixie-like. 
The red, yellow and blue woolen laces were a fine example of how the Sami used bright colours in their dress, almost as an antidote to the severely monochrome landscape. The following morning, we set off all together in a convoy of snowmobiles to meet Leonard's brother, Kenneth, and a hundred or so of the family's reindeer, which had been brought down from their highland grazing pastures into a corral where they would be held either temporarily or for the duration of the winter. The point of the meeting was to decide whether or not to move the animals on, a decision which apparently involved any number of obscure variables. The Sami have been herding reindeer since prehistoric times. Miraculously, most still do, though not all family members will participate and most will have to take other jobs as well to make ends meet. In this respect, Kenneth was unusual. He was a dedicated herdsman who had never had another job. He had the right face for it, three parts indestructible prop forward, one part stand-up comedian, I imagine a good sense of humour is as important to survival here as good circulation. We passed through a sequence of metal gates and into an enclosure of hard-packed snow where the reindeer were waiting. They stared at us with huge, glassy eyes. Leonard built a fire and consulted with his brother. The girls and I fed the reindeer lichen from string bags, reindeer ready meals, necessary for when they can't roam freely and forage for themselves. They ate clumps of the crumbly lichen from our hands and I could feel the warmth of their breath through my gloves. The sound of a herd of reindeer walking on snow is the strangest thing. The movement of tendons over bones in their hind legs causes a distinctive clicking noise. Scientists think this helps them stick together when visibility is low. It took a minute or two to figure out what it reminded me of. It was the bouncy popping sound made by raindrops on the outside of a tent. These are hefty animals with big hooves. How wonderful that their steps should sound so dainty, almost weightless. I was hearing that reindeer raindrop pitter-patter in my mind for days afterwards. Back at the camp, as it grew dark outside, I asked Leonard what it's like to be a Sami in the 21st century. He spoke freely about land rights, climate change, sustainability, racism, big business. Not an altogether cheerful conversation, but not an altogether bleak one either. The facts of Sami history cannot be undone. The worst of it is almost unbearable. And yet here the Sami are, tending their herds at home and at ease in this testing environment, as they have been for thousands of years. The details change, but the principles stay the same, Leonard said. Our reindeer are very adaptable. We need to be too. Leonard had an unhurried way about him that I liked. Time passes slowly here in the evening, he said, putting another log on the fire, giving the coals a stir. The room brightened. And that's good. You can let your thoughts roll out all the way. 
which will do nicely as an answer to the what am I doing here question. You're here to have such conversations and to let your thoughts roll out all the way. We hope you enjoyed our Escapes Truth podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us on the charts and ensure that you're the first to hear about our new episodes.